We're gonna give that away every week. Paved with gold Lifted some stones Saw the skin and bones Of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house Where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to participate in this ministry. We thank everybody who participates and helps. May He be with you uh, and us tonight. Heart of the Matter can be seen right now, live streaming video anywhere in the world, www.hotm.tv. Just go uh, and click on streaming video button and we can go from there. S nearly six years ago, uh, my wife drove me um, to the Long Beach airport and uh, kind of said, uh, you're, here you are, you're, good luck. We were in deep debt. I was in school. Uh, we're on that camera. And uh, well, um, so tonight or today, you uh, Mary made Utah uh, our home. So we are officially here. No more, no more uh, weekly uh, travels uh, via the airlines. No more of any of that. It's six years. She's put up with uh, a lot and uh, put it all on the line for the Lord and came to know the Lord along the way and, and our children. So people who are out there and think, you know, if I leave the church, uh, my family will fall apart. My children will be lost. Uh, I've got to stay in for them. It's not true. Uh, put your faith and trust in him, and he will bless you. He'll bless your marriages through thick and thin. Uh, still not easy on the poor woman, but uh, uh, he does bless you. So don't give up. Welcome to Utah. <laughs> I love you too. All right. Weather's getting cold. Uh, people are needing warm coats each year. Aletheia Ministries uh, tries to help the rescue mission of Salt Lake City in their efforts to keep people warm. How can you help bring new socks, the ones still in the wrapped bags, you know, and new or nearly new winter coats for males and females here to the station between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., Monday through Friday, and we will take them in bulk over to the rescue mission. The address is on the screen. Thanks uh, for helping for those of you who are so inclined. Every Sunday without fail, God willing, we hold church up at the University of Utah. 10 a.m. we do milk. 2.30 we do meat. 
We do verse by verse. It's a very unique approach to uh, church, so to speak. And if you're looking for a unique approach, a lot of non-churchy stuff going on, but a lot of fellowship and good times uh, in the Lord. Come join us. Go to www.campus.com. And between the letters campus is a hyphen. Campus.com. All right. Take note of this. Ready? This coming Monday night, 7 p.m. sharp. Be there early, but sharp. At the Gateway Movie Theaters in downtown Salt Lake City, join us for our premiere of Boy. Take a look. to the short film Girl, which we aired this time last year. It's had a profound effect on people. It's even screened in New York City, different places around here. Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City screened it. Other uh, groups have screened it. It's affected young girls and guys uh, and even adults. Seriously, Boy is the follow-up. Girl was the, uh, the presentation of what the girl experienced through uh, premarital relationships. And now we're going to see what the boys' perspective was. So join us. Gather up your teens. A free premiere on Monday night, December 5th, 7 p.m., the Gateway Theaters. Uh, hey, would you like to be an audience member? We often get people who don't realize that you can be in the audience. The studio audience, uh, they're a very good-looking group tonight. And uh, they're, all, they're all here. And you show up by about 7.30 if you can, to the studio, the, and we can put the address of the station on the, air, on the screen for you. And uh, you just come and it's free, and there's no screening other than signing your name in. Every now and then we do a brief pat down if you look suspicious, just kidding. Uh, and uh, you just come and watch. Now, we would love to have you come anytime you want, but we especially invite you to come on Tuesday night, December 27th. Why? Because that's our 300th uh, show. Uh, we celebrated 200 uh, a while ago. 300 is coming around the corner in the next few weeks. December 27th, be here. Last year we filled the studio with, I mean, last time we filled the studio with people, had a celebration. So we'd love to have you think about it. Okay, how about a moment from the Word of God? We're working through the Gospel of John, and all we do is we just are casually scanning for passages that relate to the Mormon Christian debate. Tonight, uh, we look at John chapter 1, verse 17. Here, John the Baptist says something very plainly. He says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And I... <laughs> forget it. Uh, now, you think this would be a pretty easy statement to understand, wouldn't you? 
for the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But in the LDS perspective, it's not so simple. Let's talk about this for a minute. Moses received the law from God, and through him it was given to the Jews. This law, however excellent in and of itself, was little in comparison to the gospel or the good news. You see, the law, as it proceeded from the holiness of God, was intended, this was the purpose of the law, according to like Romans 3, uh, 28, the law was intended to convict every single person of sin. That was the purpose of the law. And it was a law of rigor and condemnation and even death. The law was also full of types and figures, and it, and it was, people were incapable of living under it, and especially of expiating sin by trying to obey it. It couldn't remove sin. To embrace it or attempt to live it was going to be a life of frustration, condemnation, guilt, and failure. Nobody ever me uh, measured up to God under the law, but this, remember, is why God gave it. He gave you his standard of holiness, and he said, this is my standard of holiness. You try to live it, and you just keep failing and failing and failing and failing. What it does is it brings you to the good news of Jesus Christ. See, yes, the law was given by Moses, but notice that John the Beloved, excuse me, not John the Baptist wrote this, but John the Beloved, when he said, but, however, nevertheless, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law by Moses, certainly, but, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. And this grace and truth was in total opposition to the condemnation that the law produced. This is why Paul wrote in Romans uh, 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You see, Jesus came and he obeyed that law perfectly, and nobody else has ever been able to obey it. And he uh, is, was not condemned by it, but we are. Now, in this new covenant of grace and truth, we believe on him who obeyed that law. And we put our faith and trust in him who did what we could not do. We don't look to the law, which is impossible for us to, or any aspect of the law, to try to follow. We look to him who totally fulfilled the law, and we totally put our faith and trust in him who did it for us. And by that, we are saved by grace through faith, you see. This is why Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You see, the law does not in any way make a person righteous because we can't live it. But what makes us righteous is by looking to him who faithfully obeyed the law, and by that we are given righteousness by virtue of our faith and faith alone. In Mormonism, they refer to their practices as laws, and they demand conformity to those laws in order for people to be deemed faithful. They have what they call the law of the Sabbath. They have, uh, they've had a law of consecration. 
They have a law of health, referred to as their word of wisdom. They have something called the law of tithing. I mean, that's what it's called, the law of tithing. They even go so far in one of their articles of faith to say, we believe that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all mankind may be saved by grace, no, by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the good news. So it's a total amalgamation of Old Testament, New Testament, all this stuff. But the New Testament is clear. You can't mix them. Grace is grace. Law is law. There's no commingling of the two. All of these things stand in total and complete opposition to the grace and truth which comes by Jesus Christ. And every time a Mormon believes they are somehow pleasing God by obedience to what they call the laws and ordinances of the gospel, they're actually frustrating the grace and truth that God has for all those who believe. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we seek you and need you. Uh, help those who are seeking for truth that their eyes may be open. Help our audience members, wherever they may be, our volunteers, our staff, uh, everybody who is seeking to walk with you, Lord, and seeking to find you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week we presented a quote from Martin Harris, who I suggested was a mark that the Smith family and the Whitmer families chose to con out of money in order, for get, in order to get him to publish Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. When Harris went to visit Joseph Smith and Joseph told him that he had seen him it through the Urim and Thummim as the man who was going to help bring forth this Book of Mormon, this is what Harris said, quote, if this is the devil's work, Joseph, I will have nothing to do with it. But if it is the Lord's, you can have all the money necessary to bring it, meaning the Book of Mormon, forth to the world, end quote. We really don't know what Joseph did to convince Harris that the work was of the Lord and not of the devil, but we might consider the idea that Joseph at this point began to draw heavily on the themes of a book called View of the Hebrews and the messages it contained to sway a somewhat reticent uh, Harris. Let me give you an example of why I think this is the case. In the book View of the Hebrews, Pastor Ethan Smith, no relation to Joseph, and who was the pastor of Oliver Cowdery's family in Vermont, uh, he stated that one of the main purposes of the view of the Hebrews book was designed for, quote, hastening the progress of the millennial glory. In other words, to bring forth the millennium. And it was going to happen by reaching those Native American Indians who came from Israel, bringing them the gospel. And by doing that, that was going to bring about the millennial glory of Jesus Christ. This was the major theme in the view of the Hebrews, again, to bring about millennial glory. After Martin Harris met with Joseph Smith, like we talked about last week, regarding these golden plates, he then made a visit to a Christian reverend's home who had the name of John Clark. It appears that Harris visited Reverend Clark to kind of bounce off the, the things Joseph had told him and see what Reverend Clark's reactions would be to these tales, kind of to work as like a sounding board for Harris to see if what Joseph was saying was true. Well, on this visit, Harris explained that the Golden Bible would, quote, from the mouth of Reverend John Clark, 
speedily bring on the glorious millennium, end quote. The very same thing, theme that is found in view of the Hebrews. Now, it's really, really important to understand. We don't see this so much today in the LDS, but when Mormonism started all the way through with Joseph's life, the millennial glory, the imminent return of Jesus, the LDS being the light and salt of the earth so that Jesus can recome and, and establish his kingdom was a fervor. They were zealously millennialists in their thinking. They are going to prepare and develop this kingdom to which Jesus will come and he will receive. So the, this fire motivated many zealous Mormon people to give their all to usher him back to earth. That fire kind of died when Joseph died, etc. But Joseph was the one who stoked the fires of, hey, he's coming, he's coming. It was really popular at that time of his life, as evidenced by the theme of View of the Hebrews. Okay, so in explaining that the Golden Bible's purpose to Reverend John Clark, Harris included that the book would have the ability to bring forth this expected millennial uh, return, uh, a major topic taken right out of that book. This may be one justification that the Mark, uh, Martin Harris, believed that the Book of Mormon was worthy of investment. But there's another major motivator pushing Harris. There's a saying that says, you can't cheat an honest man. I believe this statement completely. What it means is an honest man is not going to fall for scams and promises of big returns or stories of gold buried out in the hills uh, because an honest man won't fall for foolish speculations and promises of great returns on his money. Why? How come? Well, honest men aren't motivated by greed. They're honest men. They don't yearn for immediate gains, and therefore they reject promises that are shady from con men. Honest men are uh, not going to be taken in um, by vain glory, so to speak. Uh, in the movie The Sting, Robert Redford, when they're about to pull the whole sting off on their mark, he's sitting there and he's very nervous about what they're about to do. It's the night before. And Paul Newman says, hey, what's wrong? What, what are you so worried about? And he said, I don't know, I'm just a little jittery. And Paul Newman says something to the effect of, what are you worried about? We had him 25 years ago when he decided he was going to be somebody in his life. You see, honest men don't go out to be somebody in their life. If it happens, it happens. But men of vainglory do, and they are perfect marks for uh, being conned. When Harris made his visit uh, to the reverend's house after meeting with Joseph Smith, this is what the reverend had to say about what Joseph had told him. The whole thing appeared to me so ludicrous and puerile that I could not refrain from telling Mr. Harris that I believed in a mere hoax got up to practice upon his credulity or an artifice to extort from him money. For I had already in the course of the conversation learned that he had advanced some $25 to Joe Smith as a sort of premium for sharing with him the glories and profits from this new revelation. For at this time his mind, meaning Harris's mind, seemed to be quite intent upon the pecuniary advantage, that means the monetary advantage, that would arise from the possession of plates of solid gold as upon the spiritual light it would diffuse over the world. That's from John Clark's gleanings. 
Harris's own wife reported that on one occasion she told her husband he'd better get out of the company of the Smiths as their religion was false, to which Harris replied, if you'd leave me alone, I could make money by it. While in an argument with his wife, a neighbor claimed that she was an ear and eye witness to the fact that Harris said to her when she was nagging him, quote, what if it is a lie? If you will let me alone, I will make money of it. In light of all this, then, I would add that where Harris was certainly the chosen mark for the clans Smith and Whitmer, he himself, like the marks in Ocean Eleven and like the mark in the sting, was not an honest man and therefore totally susceptible to this con. So, having obtained the plates now and an apparent financier, Joseph prepared to um, translate. Uh, because of the pressure from cronies that he used to dig treasure with, uh, uh, they were putting pressure on him because they wanted their share in this. They believed themselves to be part of a team. Joseph left the town of Manchester to translate in more peaceful surroundings. As a side note, Joseph later described his leaving the Manchester area as a result of persecution from an unnamed individual. When in reality, what it was, was all his uh, gold-seeking buddies were mad that they weren't uh, let in on this gold, feeling that they had, were kind of a team to find this stuff. This is kind of half my problem with Mormonism uh, and the Joseph Smith history. Um, if Joseph had been a treasure seeker, uh, and he was, and had lots of buddies who believed they owned part of the treasure he unearthed because they worked as, as a team, which they did, why not just say so? for goodness sake. What's the big deal? Uh, if it was the truth, say it. And then explain it. Say, you know, I was in treasure seeking with all my friends and we had a lot of fun doing that, but when an angel came and told me about these plates, it was completely separate from them. But they didn't understand that and so they were really angry with me and they kept trying to say, we want our share of the gold. But I realized, you know, from the angel visiting me that while I was <coughs> involved in treasure seeking, it was, it was not right, but now this was a completely separate event, but they didn't understand that. But no, they twist and they turn and they hide and they obfuscate all the truth that they can of the stories in order to present with you a picture that is just not true. Uh, Joseph wasn't an honest man and the church leadership that has followed him wasn't honest either. Now in this day, 2011, they're starting to have to be. And so they're coming out and they're making it appear that, boy, we, have, we are showing that Joseph looked into a hat to translate the book. And we are saying that he really never had the plates with him when he did the translation. Why are they doing this? Because they have to. The Internet is making them stand up because of the official documents that are proving all their earlier stories that I was fed all the way up through, you know, to the mid-1980s. I think they pushed this stuff. And I think they still do. And so... Uh, People can take the truth, really, no matter how ugly it is. Most people realize, you know, I've made mistakes in my life too, I can handle it. But when you start fabricating around it, that's when they smell a rat. And that's when they say we're not going to have anything to do with it. Anyway, Joseph decided to move to Pennsylvania, as his father-in-law had suggested. So Joseph wrote to his brother-in-law, Emma's brother, and said, come down, bring a wagon, and take Emma and, and I back to Pennsylvania so I can, start so I can come visit you and live there. They moved on a house that was part on the corner of, of Emma Smith's father's property, Isaac Hale. And Isaac Hale, when they arrived, this is what he wrote about their arrival. 
Soon after they arrived, I was informed they had brought a wonderful book of plates down with them. I was shown a box in which it was said that where they were contained, which had to all appearances been used as a glass box of the custom-sized window glass. I was allowed to feel the weight of the box, and they gave to me to understand that the book of plates was then in the box to which I was not allowed to look. I inquired of Joseph Smith Jr. who was to be the, who was to be the first who would be allowed to see the book of plates. And he said it would be a young child. After this, I became dissatisfied and informed him if, that, if, if there was going to be anything in my house of that description, which I could not be allowed to see, he must take it away. If he did not, I was determined to see it. After that, the plates were said to be hid in the woods. By the way, there were many people jo who re reported that Joseph said the first person to see the plates was going to be a young child. I'm telling you folks, this guy made stuff up as he went. It just morphed and changed as he went to survive and keep the story going. Once there in Pennsylvania, Joseph began translating using Emma as a scribe. Because of his father-in-law's request that he either must get, see the plates or they were not allowed into one of his homes, the plates remained in the woods. But Joseph said the power of the spectacles was so powerful, he could read their contents as if they were sitting on the table right in front of him. Now, still at this point, it seems that he did not have a mind to make this uh, book a new revelation from God. I'm not sure he even considered turning this new revelation or whatever into a new religion at this point. Instead, it was more so going to be a pseudo-history that included many religious themes to continue to appeal to Martin Harris. And I believe with some educated speculation, admittedly, that the motive for Smith still at this point was money. Still money. Treasure digging and seeking didn't work. Working out in the fields was always just going to be working in the fields to Joseph. But to provide the, word, the world with actual words taken from a buried manuscript written on plates nobody could see except his family, uh, I think that he decided this is going to produce some coin and he put all his efforts on it. The idea that the Book of Mormon did not start out uh, even when it was originally translated as a religious book is attested to those uh, many people who had conversations with Joseph about it. Uh, let me just say this. Joseph Smith's father, well before the Book of Mormon came out, said the same thing we are about to read from some people who talked to Joseph about what the book was about. Uh, a, a, uh, Joseph Knight, a member of the LDS Church and friend of Joseph Smith, he also told the same story that we're about to read from two witnesses that say Joseph told them this about the purpose of the Book of Mormon. And in this case, Emma Smith had two cousins. Their name was Joseph and Hyle Lewis. This is what they said. They said Joseph told them by a dream, he was informed that there was such a place in a certain hill in an iron box where some gold engravings with some gold plates with curious engravings, which he must get and translate and write a book that the plates were to be kept concealed from every human being for a certain time, some two or three years, that he came to that place and dug till he came to a stone that was covered by a box, and he was knocked down, that he again attempted to remove the stone, and he was knocked down again. This attempt was made a third time, and the third time he was knocked down, after he exclaimed, why can't I get it? Or words to that effect. 
And then he saw a man standing over the spot, which to him appeared like a Spaniard, having a long white beard over his breast about to hear. And it says Smith put his hand about the mid of his stomach. And, the, and his throat was cut from ear to ear and blood streaming down, who told him that he could not get the plates alone. And another person whom he, Smith, would know at first sight must come with him. And then he would get the plates. And when Smith saw Miss Emma Hale, he knew that she was the person. Uh, these cousins of Emma Hale concluded that Joseph said this, or these, uh, hus uh, these cousins concluded this. In all his narrative, or this narrative, there was not one word about visions of God or of angels or heavenly revelations. All this information was about that dream and that bleeding ghost. That story perfectly fits well with Joseph's uh, dabblings in the occult and the magic practices and treasure seeking and days of the special days of the year and all that stuff. The angel story didn't come until later, as we pointed out before. Okay, so um, in February of 1828, Martin Harris thought it was important to travel and see Joseph Smith out in Pennsylvania, who was working on the book. We don't know why he did this, but it seems he felt himself a partner now, and he wanted to see how things were coming along. During that visit, Martin uh, Harris was given a piece of paper by Joseph, and on that, Joseph wrote out some characters, and he called those characters, he took them straight, supposedly, from the golden plates, and he called those characters Reformed Egyptian. Now, I want to make one observation here before we go to the phones. Where would Joseph get a word like Reformed? Um, I would suggest that since Martin Luther ignited the, the Protestant Reformation back in the 14th century, uh, back in the 15th century, excuse me, 16th century, excuse me, the, the term was popular and was used in many ways by Christians in and around Joseph's life. So being a great synthesizer of information, Joseph took the term reformed and he applied it to a word that people knew little about, Egyptian. And uh, he ran it up the flagpole to see if people would buy into it. See, scholars understood Hebrew, and they understood Greek at that time, and they understood Aramaic, but Egyptian was not known. It was a mystery language, and it was up until they discovered the Rosetta Stone. So Smith probably felt like he would be safe pulling out a title of the language called Reformed Egyptian and uh, calling and saying that the language was written on that. It didn't exist then. It still doesn't exist. Nobody has ever found it. But what really makes no sense at all about him calling it that is to believe that devout Hebrew men of Hebrew ancestry and origin would write the things of God in a language of a people for whom they had tremendous disdain. It was the Egyptians who put the Jews in bondage, remember? And the Egyptians were pagans, remember? And the sacred language is very important to the Jews. And to think that they would adopt anything from the Egyptians is like thinking that a black freedom fighter like Eldridge Cleaver or uh, Malcolm X would put on a white pointy hat to, uh, to promote their, their thing. I mean, they're just so contrary. No Jew would ever bring in the Egyptian language and write God's holy writ uh, in that language, reformed or not. Anyway, Harris took the paper to New York City to get it, uh, it authenticated by an expert. We're going to examine the stories and testimonies 
about that visit to New York City of Harris's in the weeks to come. Our ability to remain online is tied directly to your support. Please don't tire of me saying that. Don't think it's just an endless petition to, to get rich. It's just the facts. Uh, so we're going to open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Uh, in the meantime, prayerfully consider what this says, and we'll go from there. We're back. We're going to go to Vince in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Morris in Santa Quin, Utah, Kevin in Sandy, Utah. But before that, I've got a comment on this. A good friend, Danny, he showed me the church news. Someone sent this to him at his house. He's still a member, not off. And uh, this is it. And uh, this is all about the witnesses. We're going to talk about that in weeks to come. But inside, there's a story here, and it's about the prophet, the humble uh, non-materialistic, uh, Jesus is the only way, prophet of the LDS church here, having a graven image make it, made of himself. Um, and it's really interesting. It talks about how he sat so kindly and as they measured his face and got all the dimensions down. And, you know, I didn't read anything about Jesus in here. All I read about was Thomas Monson and his great life and how they can't wait to take this bust of him and put it in the conference center so he can join what they call the Hall of Prophets and all of them having their, their likeness carved in images so the LDS can walk through and say, oh, oh, wasn't he a wonderful prophet? Wasn't he a man of the Lord? Look at that graven image of him. I'll never forget that graven image that is now embedded upon my mind. It's funny, you know, the third commandment is thou shalt make no graven image. 
Not of man, not of a bird, not of this, not of that. And yet, these guys, prophets, they call themselves prophets. Could you imagine John the Baptist sitting for them to measure his face and stuff while they make a, a bust of his head? He lost his head. I mean, he, he would be like, I'm sorry, he'd be like, get the heck out of my face, you freaking scummy human being males of ego. He would be so, and he'd say exactly that, he would be so in their case, and he would not have any, and Isaiah, and, the, and Jesus said John was the greatest of the prophets. Can you imagine John the Baptist, a real prophet, sitting there so that his image could be looked at upon uh, with people with admiration? And yet every day I meet people. I sat on a guy next to, on a plane the other day. He said, you know, I, so what makes Mormonism, what, in, what is it about it that brings more to it than I have as a, a Christian? We have a living prophet. He is such a good man. I mean, the man, he was a great guy, really nice. I mean, that was his testimony to me. We have a great man. Oh, I don't know how you guys do it. I don't know how you do it. Do you know who the living God is? Do you realize how seriously he takes his relationship with people? And you are sitting there and thinking of this image as something that is worthy and good and uplifting? Holy crud. Okay, so let's go to, first we're going to go to Morris and Santa Quinn. He's LDS. Morris, you're on Heart of the Matter. Morris? 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 Okay, we're going to hang up on Morris, and we're going to go to uh, Vince in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Vince, you're on Heart of the, Heart of the Matter. Hey, uh, Sean. Hey. Um, I have a question for you, and I'm really sorry. I, I may not have a good term on this, but um, uh, my sister-in-law is Mormon and her brother-in-law, and we've kind of been hanging out with them a lot lately, and uh, we were talking about something, and they referred, uh, it was kind of regarding inner healing, but they were talking about something like dealing with the old self or the old man of some sort. Do you know anything about that? Well, you know, the Book of Mormon, being a fairly uh, good um, uh, fake of Christian uh, religious scripture, talks about the inward man. It talks about uh, spiritual rebirth. Because that's what Joseph was, was tied to, was all that, and the, the Christian revivals. And so they could have taken that from the Book of Mormon, because it is a theme taught in there. Unfortunately, it's totally counterintuitive to their idea that children are born innocent. So if children are born innocent, what's the need to be born again? So they, Excuse me, because, um, you know, I always thought that they weren't into original sin and everything. And no. that kind of throws me a loop right there. You know? No. We believe that all mankind will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. It always makes me wonder why people die. But uh, in any case, they do believe that children are born innocent, that we are automatically children of Heavenly Father. So it, that doctrine and that teaching, which is emphasized far more than spiritual rebirth in the Mormon church, uh, it, but they could be referring to something in the, uh, in the Book of Mormon. And they also read the Bible, and they'll read words of Paul, so they'll bring up the new man, and they'll, they'll talk about the natural man being an enemy to God. They, they use that language. The problem is, what is the method by which a person changes? Their method is moral uh, rectitude and, and striving and white-knuckling it through and, and turning your will over to the church, to the bishop, and letting God help you 
but it's not rebirth. They don't believe that their innate nature needs that full regenerative rebirth, and that's the problem. Hmm. Does that help? I think it kind of helps. What, um, where are, what am I lacking in, Morris? Um, I don't, I don't, I guess, uh, is it something that they really think is important? Is it something they even talk about very often? I mean, Vince? Uh, no, it's not. That, that's, that was one of the things that led me to write the book Born Again Mormon and why we focused on spiritual rebirth because it's not taught. And Jesus making it an imperative says you must be born again. And if you ask a Latter-day Saint, hey, are you born again? They'll say, well, uh, they'll say I am, some of them, or they'll say, well, I'm trying to be. Or they'll say, I am born again every day. Every day is a new choice. They miss the whole biblical meaning of rebirth. And that's, that's one of the problems with it. If you give me two minutes, let me give you a reason how they miss it. You ready? Sure. Adam, God said, when you partake of the fruit, you're going to die. And he ate of the fruit, but he lived to be 930 years old. And God said, in this day, you will surely die. How did Adam die? Adam was body, soul, and spirit. When he ate of the fruit and disobeyed God, he died spiritually. And he spiritually was dead immediately. He died that day. In that day, you shall surely die. And he died spiritually. And all his progeny was born spiritually dead, operating only by their body and their souls now. And that's how all human beings are born into this world through Adam and Eve. Okay? And, so, and then Adam progressively decayed in his soul. He was perfect in the Garden of Eden, but his mind, will, and emotion, which makes up his soul, progressively decayed as he was exposed to a sinful world. Ultimately, his body died 930 years later, and he went to the grave, dust to dust. When you're born again, you are immediately regenerated. That's why the LDS notion that it takes a lifetime to be born again is false. It doesn't match the model of Adam dying immediately in his spirit. When you are reborn, you immediately are born again in your spirit and given new life. Then progressively, your soul gets better and better by virtue of that spirit working in you. You're not perfect. You still make mistakes. But it's a, it's a, a development of progress in your soul by virtue of the Holy Spirit working in you. And ultimately, your body will be glorified at the resurrection. So it's the reverse process of what Adam introduced, it's the reverse process when you're born again. The LDS do not embrace that. They say spiritual rebirth is a long time process and they've got it wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, thanks for watching out there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Vince. Hey, I love the show, man. Keep it up. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Okay, uh, you're going to think this is really straining at a gnat, but you, People Magazine has this nice layout, Mitt Romney, and I'm not speaking against Mitt Romney as a candidate. I can't do that. But Mitt Romney, I'm speaking about Mitt Romney and Mormonism. It shows him holding a plate of cookies about to go into the oven. Very homey. And it does all these things and it talks about Mitt Romney. Now, my problem has always been if there's a Mormon, whoever it is, in office, is that Mormonism will win and Mormonism will take place. And I think every candidate will do this. John F. Kennedy probably touted some things that were Catholic. But Mormon, a Mormon president, whoever it would be, I'm not saying it would be Romney, but whoever a Mormon president would be, they will tout Mormonism. How do I know this? There's little, there's little hints. Here's one. They asked Romney, hey, what's on your iPod? He says, well, when I work out, he says, I've got the Beatles, I've got the Eagles, I've got Roy, Roy Orbison, and I've got some other band that is uh, very kind of that, that style, right? And so you understand what he's listening to, and he says, and I have the killers, now, who are, a lot of you older viewers aren't going to know who the killers are. 
But the Killers are a very popular band right now that appeal to youth. And the Killers are led by a frontman named Brandon Flowers. And Brandon Flowers is a Mormon. And he stands out for Mormonism as the leader of the Killers. And so he says, Roy Orbison, the Eagles, take it easy. And then the Killers and the music genre is totally opposite of all the other bands. Why does Romney choose to mention the Killers in this article? Because they're led by a Mormon frontman. Now you're going to think you're crazy. I am not crazy. The Mormon agenda is going to continue on ad nauseum through this world. And we're, only, we're just feeding it when we, when we think that we can put a Mormon into uh, office and not have it just, just kind of drench all of society. And here's just one small little example. And, and, and I could be wrong. He might be a Killers fan, uh, but I doubt it. All right? Okay, let's go to Lori in Spanish Fork, Utah. Lori, you're on Heart of the Matter. Lori? We're having trouble with line two. It's not coming through. Lori, call us back on another line. All right, hold on one second. Mormonism A to Z. It's a fantastic resource, 649 pages of information. Uh, we have given you a pre-sale offer for this book, $30 regularly, plus shipping. We won't charge you shipping. It's $30 flat uh, to Aletheia Ministries. Uh, the offer ends December 1st. After that, it's going to go to the bookstores and on our website, $34.95 plus shipping and handling, all that stuff. Uh, also, a book is going to come with a living endorsement by a jackass who wrote it. So that's a, that's a benefit. Orders taken by going to www.hotm.tv. You can also write us, and I guess they're going to put that on the screen as to where to write us if you want to order the book. It's got to be postmarked by December 1st. Anything thereafter, we're not going to be able to honor that. Uh, with this pre-sale offer. Okay, uh, let's go to Kevin and Sandy. Kevin, you, Sandy, Utah, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, you got to turn down your TV, Kevin. It's going to take him. Kevin, they said, they said Lori. Uh, Kevin. Kevin. He said Lori. Uh, well, you're on the air, Kevin. Okay. Hello? Turn down your TV, Kevin. It's down. All right, you're on the air. It's not down. Hi, Sean. Hi. Are you there? It's a time delay, Kevin. You've got to turn that TV all the way down or you're going to get confused. It's all the way down. I can hear it. Okay, Sean, uh, th my name is Kevin. Yes. Um, I was married for 32 years. Um, I was um, uh, in the LDS marriage, and I was... Um, in the LDS religion, and the church was used as a weapon against me because of a lot of different things, because my wife would go to the bishop and tell her things about, like, like that, oh, he's using caffeine pills, so he's, he's bad. So um, I, I, w I would always be amazed when I would go to, like, the priesthood meetings, and I'd, like, they'd have lessons on the Word of Wisdom, and they would try to talk about the difference between hot caffeine and cold caffeine. I never understood that. Yeah, good point. So is that your point? Um, well, that's one of them, but it was after 32 years I got divorced. I've left the church because it's the biggest fraud ever. Yeah. And, and I've never, ever 
understood why until I started reading it. Like, like I read Godmakers, yeah. and I started to understand a lot of the things that were that happened that, that really didn't happen. Yeah, there's a lot of information online. UTLM is a great source, too. Uh, but here's the thing, Kevin. What are you doing now? It is such a travesty to see guys like you who can see through what's going on, but you walk. But what have you walked to? Well, I found your program, for one thing. Um, Dennis and Jeannie Glassborn um, showed me your program, and so I've been watching your program. And now um, I just I just look to a God who loves me and who accepts me and that I can I can turn to and that is not judgmental. Awesome, that's good. Uh, Jeannie and Dennis will uh, uh, keep pointing a good way. Keep listening to what they tell you about the Lord, and it's really great you've come out, Kevin, and and your testimony. I, I pray other people will hear you. Do you have any insider advice before we hang up that you could say to a listening audience? all over the world about you've left it, and, and what does that mean? What it means is, is I would, if I was in the LDS faith, I would not just accept what they tell you. I would, I would look into it and find out. You know, I was, I was always under the impression that the only wife that Joseph Smith had was Emma, but all you have to do is Google it, and you'll find out how many wives he really didn't have and why he didn't marry them. And, and so I would just say, don't just take your word for it. You need to find out for yourself. All right. That's a great challenge. Really appreciate it, Kevin. God bless. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Nicholas wrote, I watched a show back from the archive. There was a caller who asked about the film The Secret and the Law of Attraction. The Law of Attraction is an occult teaching which has leaked into Christianity as name it and claim it or what they call the prosperity gospel, word of faith, and other names. It's completely heretical and very dangerous as it states that God owes us a happy life, a good job, a nice car. Some of the things big preachers on TV um, also suggest. Uh, let me tell you something. Uh, what God promises you, God himself in the flesh, is persecution and trials and difficulty a dying from the things of this world, which probably means trouble in one area or another when it comes to your life here. And, uh, but his, uh, who are his, follow him, and they are faithful and trusting in him and his promises, and they look to an eternal uh, glory, not to a worldly. And so anybody who teaches these things like word of faith and prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, uh, turn the TV, man. Just turn it. It's not biblical in the sense of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. They might find biblical precedent, precedents for it in the Old Testament. Certainly not since Christ came. Uh, Rockwell says uh, there is a great source to research Joseph Smith's uh, genealogy and his wives. It's FamilySearch.org. If you perform a search on Joseph Smith, typing in his name, birth date, and places of birth, and place of birth. It will bring up all marriages, some I should say, including the names and ages uh, that Joseph Smith was a part of. So people who don't believe that Joseph Smith was a polygamist, go to your own familysearch.org, type in Joseph's name, his date of birth. I think it was December 23rd. I don't know the year. You can look that up online. And just look for yourself. You can see all the wives he had, and 99% uh, of them secret from his wife, Emma. Mark from Salt Lake City, Utah is calling on line three. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, hello. Hi. 
You're on the air. Oh, oh, okay. I, uh, uh, okay, I... Uh, you know, when you always talk about uh, oh, uh, grace and that the law isn't important, mm-hmm. there, um, what I want to say is that the grace allows you allows the believer to yes we'll fall and we'll never live it perfectly but in the old testament god uh, psalms 103 says he will he will look on us and understand that we were made of dirt yeah. uh, but if the point that i want to bring out is that christians who who are are hello I'm here. Christians who are, I mean, Jude, the letter of Jude completely speaks of grace. But, 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 but the person who is following that grace must be living a sanctified and a holy life. Okay, right there, you're dead. R- wrong. No, what you're a, wrong. What about second? What about no, you can't say must. You cannot say second must. Third. You cannot say must. Because I'm going to tell you something. You are not living a sanctified life. Well, no. Right now you're getting angry at me for ch- calling you on this. Your blood pressure is going up. You're, no, you're, I'm not. My blood pressure is not going up. Okay, but you cannot put a must. Service, but what, you what, cannot put a must. You can put a will. No, wait. You can put a will. You can say true Christians will love and they will have faith. They will, must. What's that? that, that. It's a huge difference. It's oh. a huge difference. Because in the churches, a, a pastor who teaches must puts everybody there under law. And it is, you might think it's not significant. What you're trying to do is once these people have begun in the spirit, you are trying to perfect Daniel. them in the flesh. Can no, no, no. Daniel? Daniel, Psalms, great stuff. But in the gospel All of I Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a, there's it is grace. a prayer inside of Daniel chapter no, I don't want to hear the prayer in Daniel. I don't, I'm just talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught by Paul throughout the New Testament. Fine. Listen, Paul I am all for. Is, no, no, don't, no, you not. You're going to read it anyway? You're gone. Uh, listen, I am all for living a life that is devoid of as much sin as God gives to you the strength to overcome. I am not antinomian in the sense of do what you will. I've never met a true Christian who wants to sin. I meet Christians who fail. I meet Christians who have struggles, but they have guilt and they have consciousness and they go to God and they say, Abba, Father, help me with these problems. I've never met a true Christian that says, it's okay to do what I want. So, but don't bring people under musts. It's wrong in terms of Pauline epistles and everything in context. It's just look at the context, okay? All right. Uh, are you doing? Yes, I am. Really quickly before we go to Lori in Spanish Fork, a Mormon president, $25 minimum donation, uh, www.hotm.tv. You can get this, and it's uh, great, but we're not going to show the clip for it. But uh, hotm.tv, and you can pick up a... Uh, a video that looks like this. Okay, let's go to Lori in Spanish Fork. First time caller, Lori, you are on Heart of the Matter. Hi there, Sean. Thanks for taking my call. You're I welcome. have three questions for you tonight. Yes, be quick. You got three minutes. Okay, okay. My first question is: is um, 
I was reading a book, uh, Sidney Rigdon, Portrait of Religious Success, where there was a reference made to that, jo- that Joseph Smith, after writing the Book of Mormon, took it to Canada to sell the copyright. Yeah. Is that true is my first question. Second okay, stop, question stop, is, stop, stop. I can't remember the question. So the first one is, Joseph himself didn't go. He received a revelation from God sending others to go and told them that they would find financing in Canada for the book. And it was a false, it was a false prophecy, which makes him a false okay. prophet. Second question. Okay. okay, got that. My second question is, is, well then, by selling that copyright, obviously there was going to be some kind of benefit financially. Who stood to gain from the sale of the copyright? Who, who owned the copyright? Joseph Smith? Yeah. Businesses? Joseph Smith, um, Joseph Smith owned the copyright. He was the author and proprietor in the first edition, stamped on the fr- title page. And had they sold that, and he was willing to sell the Word of God, by the way, the copyright mm-hmm. to get money. Uh, we're going to cover that later. Uh, he would have benefited monetarily and probably paid back some of the money that was loaned to him. Okay, well then my last question is, 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 is it true that the first edition of the Book of Mormon says that it was written or authored by Joseph Smith whereas the consecutive editions all state that it was translated by Joseph Smith. That's absolutely true. Okay, well, you answered my questions. Thanks so much for taking my call. Hey, great questions, Lori. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay, listen, some important reminders, invitations. First Sundays, uh, we hold our version of uh, church we think is pretty solid. We teach the word, we sing together, we grab food, we fellowship, we learn. Uh, Then we get the heck out of Dodd so we can go out into the community and, and practice our faith. So uh, that's called campus. Listen, any good Christian Bible teaching church in this state, go to it. You don't have to come to campus. You go anywhere where they're teaching the Bible, and they're praising the Lord, and they're keeping you out from law. Uh, by all means, go. Uh, this week, we're doing communion. So if you want to come experience with us, join us. Go to campus.com. And secondly, uh, Monday night, remember, boy, the premiere, uh, 7 p.m., where, uh, Monday, December 5th. Uh, anyone and everyone, it is free. We hope youth will come, and it's the second installment of this three-part trilogy addressing teen sex. The first one is girl, the second one is boy, and the third part, which will come out next year, uh, is God. And so uh, very uh, entertaining and very informative and a great tool for youth uh, leaders to use. So we hope you'll take advantage of this free screening and come and join us. Really quickly, a final email here. It says... How do I share the LDS with my door? It seems they just want to show up, say what they have to say, and leave. They don't want to hear anything else. Let me tell you something. When you go out hunting bears, you only shoot bears. This is something that Hunter told me. I used to think you took a gun out, you went out to hunt bears, but if you saw a deer, you shot the deer. But that's not what they do. You hunt a bear, you're only, you're only shooting bears. The LDS missionaries, they go and they look for the uninformed, the ill-equipped, and people who will not put up resistance, and they only shoot and spend their time on those. Remember that. Join us next week here on Heart of the Matter.